Hello, my name is Isabella Johnston and I am the Intern Whisperer and today's employer tip of the week is all about active listening. Here are five tips to become an engaged and an effective listener. First, pay attention. Give the speaker your undivided attention and acknowledge the message. Look at them while they are speaking. Two, show that you're listening. Use your own body language and gestures to convey your attention nod occasionally, smile and use other facial expressions. And please remember not to be distracted by your phone. Third, provide feedback. Many times our personal filters, assumptions and beliefs can distort what we hear. Reflect on what has been said by paraphrasing. What I'm hearing is, and it sounds like you are saying are great ways to reflect back. Ask questions to clarify certain points. What do you mean when you say this, whatever this might be? And is this what you mean? Summarize the speaker's comments periodically. Four, defer judgment. Interrupting is a waste of time. It frustrates the speaker and limits full understanding of the message. Allow the speaker to finish. Don't interrupt with counter arguments. Five, respond appropriately. Active listening is a model for respect and understanding. You are gaining information and perspective. Assert your opinions respectfully. Treat the other person as he or she wants to be treated. So welcome to the Intern Whisper. I'm so excited to have Alberto on my show today, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. He is the co-founder of Transcend Network, a global network of founders building the future of learning and work, and I was so happy to be a part of the fellowship. He is a general partner at Transcend Fund and a lover of all things about education, history, music, basketball, and improv. So welcome, Alberto. Thank you so much, Isabel. That's a, a very comprehensive introduction. So yeah, I pulled it straight from your LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. So um, I always kick off the show so that my listeners can learn more about you. What are And I already took your five words straight from LinkedIn. So what are your five words that you would tell others that describe who you are? And why those five words? Yeah, um, well, I think you, you've kind of covered uh, a, a good number of, of them already. Um, but um, so I'm Alberto. I joined, I'm joining from Madrid right now uh, in, in Spain. Um, I've lived in a lot of different places, um, but I would say home is definitely one of the words as of recently. I decided to come back home to Spain, uh, which has been a great decision. Um, I think... Uh, if I were to think of the other um, four words, um, I have to think a little bit harder about it. But I would say, uh, learning and or education is definitely another one. It's very present in my own journey and uh, something that I, I'm always thinking a lot about. Um, passion would be another one. I'm uh, very passionate about what I do and hope it it sort of shows up in in the different ways that I uh, interact with people like yourself who've gone through our fellowship. Um, and uh, I would say kindness is something that I strive to uh, embed into everything that I do every day, um, which is is very, yeah, very important to me as well. And uh, maybe family would be the, the last one of the five. I'll give you another one because this is also how I see you. You're very relational, I believe. And that that ties in obviously to many of the same words that you just use to express yourself and also what you put on there. So, um, yeah, so, okay, cool. Now, why don't you share your educational background? Because I find that the school that you went to, I believe our listeners would really like to know more about that school, but how did you end up to where you are now? Yeah, thank you, Isabel. So um, I think the, the part that you were referring to and, and the question, uh, and I'm happy to expand on this, um, where I went to university. So. Um, but I guess before that, I got to give a little bit of background. So I grew up in Madrid, in Spain, as I mentioned. Um, and when I grew up around here, I didn't, I wasn't particularly, I, I don't think I would have resonated with any of the words that I said um, uh, just a few minutes before. I think I was a very different person. Um, 
I was very focused on the like one thing that I knew how to do well, which was playing basketball. And I think not that many people who've met me in the last few years know that about me because it's a little bit less present right now in my life. Um, but um, I guess fortunately or unfortunately, I learned uh, when I was 17 that um, I had a heart condition. And so I wasn't able to play basketball uh, overnight, which was a, a very shocking uh, thing for me. And it really just threw me in for, for a loop. Um, I, I think I kind of had to refine re uh, um, a new identity of what made me, me, right? Like what made Alberto uh, um, in, in this identity. And so I was really, really lucky to um, basically get a, a scholarship to go to the University of Glasgow in um, Scotland, a uh, very sort of serendipitous opportunity that came up in my life. But I was pretty bored, uh, I would say, <laughs> within the first few months, I realized that it was a very formal, uh, very traditional um, experience. I think uh, I don't have anything against the university per se, but it was definitely a part of the university status quo. It was a 500-year-old university. And at the time, I just learned about a, a new university that was coming up called Minerva University. The whole idea around Minerva was you go to a different city of the world every semester. Um, you are a part of this global um, student body uh, that comes from, I think, 50 plus countries. And what allows you to do that is you are doing your classes online. So you move with a cohort um, and basically a laptop, and that's pretty much it in a bag. Uh, you, you don't really have a campus in all the cities that you go to. So you start in San Francisco, you go to Berlin and Buenos Aires, then you go to Hyderabad in India and um, Seoul in South Korea, then London, Taipei, and back to San Francisco. So it's a very global university. Um, and when I learned about it, it was um, it was just getting started. So it was recruiting its first uh, graduating class of students. So I was very lucky to get involved in the early days, um, which was very, I mean, it was transformational for me. I think both the university experience itself, but being an early student, I think there's a lot of similarities with being an early employee or a co-founder of a startup. Um, so it was a very uh, interesting experience for me. Um, there, there's a lot of things about the Minerva model that were uh, pretty interesting. I would say starting from the admissions process, I think they were able to identify a lot of the things that I had to change in my life to find a new identity and a new purpose after drop-in basketball. And they were the first ones that ever told me, like, there's something valuable in what you've done here. Um, so that was, yeah, a very interesting admissions uh, criteria and philosophy um, here. Um, I think there's also a lot of interesting stuff around the financial component. So a lot of students, uh, a lot of prospective students think that it's going to be a really posh, really expensive university because you go to all these different parts of the world. And in fact, it's a fraction of what a, a normal US university would look like. Um, I would have never afforded, I would have never been able to afford a uh, U.S. university if it weren't for Minerva, and uh, they're fully accredited. So it was a very interesting um, university experience. I highly recommend everybody to check it out. Uh, they're always taking new cohorts every year. And so that's where I did my undergrad. And I think a, a lot of these ideas that I was able to uh, get from Minerva influenced the work that I've done after. Um, but I, I would say the last part about kind of specifically about this question of education. Um, one of the things I learned after university is that the moment you step out of a classroom, it's, or a university campus, um, it gets a lot harder to continue to find educational opportunities for yourself. And it's, you have to be a lot more intentional about building an education for yourself. Um, and so I guess I, the last few years have been, I didn't graduate all that long ago, actually, uh, but I've been, trying to find kind of the the institutions, the rituals, uh, the communities that allow me to create my own education um, outside of a, a university campus, which is um, something I, I think I missed too, you know, like the the structure and the kind of very natural spaces for, for learning that come up in a physical space. I, I, I do find myself uh, missing that sometimes. You know, what's interesting out of a lot of that you shared, and thanks for sharing all of that, um, well, basketball, I'm going to go to that. I'll give you another word that I think helps to define who you are. Basketball is about team dynamics. And what you've created through Transcend Network is a, a really strong foundational team within your own network, you know, the, the leadership side of it. But also by having this fellowship, you've actually modeled the same um, experience through Minerva, through the fellowship. 
I don't know if you did that intentionally. Was that? Yeah, I, I think I always try to find um, good, uh, strong support networks and uh, try to like, also empower over others where I can. Um, and uh, I hadn't made that connection myself, but um, I yeah, I, I think um, th that relational component, um, I think is definitely in there, as, as you mentioned. Yeah. And the other thing about Transcend, just as your educational experience was country to country, that's what you've built also within Transcend Network. So it's a way to travel and, and experience other places. Well, if you can't travel, you can definitely experience other places that way. Um, have you heard of Remote Year? Because Minerva's education uh, experience sounds very similar to Remote Year. And I went, man, that is so awesome. Yeah, I think there's there's definitely components about uh, being able to integrate an educational experience into your travel. Um, I think a lot of people are are used to just doing like a semester abroad, and it's like you just go somewhere, you get hammered in like with your friends, you know, your university, and it's like I think there's a a lot more depth into those experiences that we often find when it's kind of more isolated. So um, I definitely advocate for more intentional kind of travel experiences where you can free yourself from a lot of the biases and um, habits that you might even have in your hometown, your home country. Um, so anything that has to do with that, I'm a strong supporter of. Oh, yeah, I agree with you. So when you did that, then it took you to, how did you start Transcend Network then? Yeah, so... Um, when I was in my first year of Minerva, I met Michael, who's uh, my co-founder at Transcend. And um, he was working in the tech space already. So he was uh, running an in-person accelerator in, in the Bay Area in San Francisco. And so he invited uh, some Minerva students to go there, check it out, get to know some of the founders and kind of brainstorm with them. And so I was one of those students um, and that's how we got to know each other. Um, so we kind of built a relationship there and um, we just check in on each other every once in a while. And towards the end of my time, I found myself thinking a lot about the startup side. I had had some experience working in startups, but um, I, I wasn't sure that it's like, I was going to be able to start a startup myself. So I was thinking like, what, what are some of the best ways that I could help education go more, go more global, right? Like this was one of the ideas that I had. Um, historically, education has always been very hyper-localized, right? So the majority of people, um, go to school, go to university if they can, or vocational training, or uh, they're an apprentice, um, and then they go work. And all of this happens within a maybe 100 mile radius, right? There's very little um, kind of global um, interactions uh, in, in that educational experience. So Michael was thinking about a, a similar question, but more from the founder side. So like, how do you support early stage founders, give them what they need? Uh, to be able to find sustainability. And so kind of we started jamming on some of these ideas uh, towards the end of my time at Minerva. And um, yeah, we came, we came up with this idea of like, what if we could support founders at the early stages, try to do it in this sort of community centric way um, and try to do it 100% globally. So um, that's how we started running these fellowships that uh, you've experienced. They looked very differently when we started. Um, but uh, but I guess the, the traits that have always remained in place are that we try to be very community centric. We try to support founders um, and really try to speak their language. I think there's a lot of um, a lot of accelerators, a lot of funds and stuff that like want to support founders. But um, I think they maybe have a little bit less of a like a little bit less empathy for the founder journey. And uh, Michael and I are very much founders, just like all of, like yourself. Um, so we try to empathize with that, create a language and create a community that supports failure and that uh, embraces like can be vulnerable. And I think that's just something that we didn't really see as much um, out there. So um, we started doing these fellowships and we realized that we could be of support for founders from that community side of being able to connect with other founders who are building the future of learning and the future of work um, to also helping them uh, run experiments, uh, which we found is the best way to be able to find product market fit. And that is kind of in our view, the first goal um, as a, an early stage founder is to be able to find a product that really solves a, a real customer need um, and then also help with fundraising. So we, we try to, support with uh, advice, with feedback, uh, with intros, 
to uh, founders that are going through uh, the early stages of building a startup, but want to access different uh, fundraising opportunities. So all these things were kind of slowly being incorporated into the model. And uh, what it looks like right now uh, is uh, we work with about 250 founders. Um, we just took a new cohort um, uh, as of this week. Um, we help them at the early stages um, with some of the things that I mentioned. Um, and then we also have a fund, which is called Transcend Fund, which allows us to invest kind of the first check into uh, a lot of these companies. So we tend to be very early stage investors. Um, and uh, yeah, hopefully uh, these companies go on to do really well. Um, and yeah, that's that's at a high level what we do. Yeah, that sounds really, really interesting also. So what was your major? I majored in economics and minored in history. Uh, which both ended up being uh, great passions of mine. I can see that would be truly beneficial because if you look at the historical impact of economics, right, you can mm -hmm. definitely be more of a forward thinker. Yeah. I, I, I think to just provide an example of that, um, the way that um, venture funds operate today is um, set by this 2 and 20 um, structure and what does two and twenty mean? It's the the way that the investors, it's kind of the business model of investors, and it's that you take two percent of the money that kind of was put into that pot of the fund, and you use that for your operating expenses, and then you invest the rest of the money, and when you get the money back, you take what's called a carry or carry interest, and that's the twenty percent. So two percent of management fees, twenty percent of the carry. Um, if you don't care about history you might just think, well, that's neat. That's great. Um, but if you dig a little bit deeper, you find out that this is actually uh, a medieval um, uh, shipping kind of uh, like medieval merchants in uh, all around Europe use this type of structure to fund very high risk ventures um, that would go sail the ocean and, and sell the, the world and come back with um, goods and um, objects from very foreign lands, uh, but it was so risky that they needed to find new ways to fund it. And so they said, look, this is so risky. You're very likely never coming back, but if you come back, you'll take 20% of the whole value of everything that you've brought back. Um, and this is very much how venture capital works today, right? So there are, um, you, you have to understand history to understand today. And I think when we think about the future, it's even more important because there's even more uncertainty, right? So um, I, I found it to be incredibly helpful and um, I try to read more about history than anything else. I find it to be um, very fun, honestly, and also just very, very informative mm. in my life. Yeah, that, you know, I don't think I've ever, in all of the sessions that I had with Transcend in those five weeks, ever heard that explained. You should definitely, I don't know, I'm going to have to go back and reread some of the things that you've written to see, have you been talking about it there? Do you write about it? No, no, it, it's just more of a an, an interest uh, that I have, but it, it I haven't found that many connections um, that are relevant to founders uh, around history <laughs> or improv or basketball. Um, but oh, hopefully, oh. there there are some at some point in the future. Oh my God, yes, there absolutely is. Okay, let me help kind of connect some of those dots for you too. But um, this could be a book. This alone could be a book. What your idea is, the two and twenty. Like that should be the name of the book too, how history can teach you the future. Like, there you go. That's the whole book. Okay. So um, yeah, I definitely want to see you write a whole article about that for sure. Um, but where improv comes in is that's always about pivoting fast. That's where you learn that improv, you know, and are you a stand-up comic, a closet stand-up com comic? No, no, I, I haven't tried that. Um... I've tried a little bit of improv, but um, I, yeah, I, I found it hard to kind of um, get a habit of doing improv when, when I came back to Spain. Um, I'm really sad about it, though, because I found that it really embraces failure in a way that I don't think I've seen um, other activities and even communities do, right? So when you're improvising with other people, you have to create this sense of like, just uh, I'm with you no matter what. Like you, you try something. We're going to kind of yes and what you said. We're going to try to build on it. Um, and if it doesn't take us anywhere, like that's fine. We'll just kind of start over. And you can dwell on it because the moment you dwell on it, 
you try to like overthink what you're going to say so that it looks it sounds good just gone it's just never going to work out so um i found that to be a very liberating experience um i think i remember the first time i did it um a friend invited me to something she was organizing um around improv and the whole day i i just i couldn't think about anything else i was like i've committed to this thing this is the worst thing ever like i'm going to be like it's i'm going to be so ashamed of myself like this is going to be horrible and i remember the the first activity that we did just feeling like a complete idiot um and after that it was like oh like nothing happened like you, we just moved on um i did i tried to say something and it wasn't like really leading to any anywhere else so like that's fine um so that was really interesting um and then the other idea that I think is quite applicable to to founders or people who are trying to build their their careers is that oftentimes in your career you're making split decisions yes split second decisions and in these like you often cannot think about these decisions because they're happening so fast and the only way to align your kind of your decisions um with the outcomes that you want is to train your intuition every single day. So um when you're improvising your brain is not thinking about what you're going to say, right? Like you're just spitting it out. And so if you want to get some concept in, inside of your head, some framework that's going to be a part of your output, you can't just rely on thinking about it. You have to train that you have to build a habit around it for for so long so that it basically becomes a um something that just comes natural to you. And I think that's a, a really important thing for for people like like us who are trying to build something interesting, something different. Like we have to build habits that allow us to make those split second decisions in a way that really resonate with what we want to do and who we want to be. So that's uh, the other kind of uh, connection that I've always seen with improv. Yeah, I love improv. I'm not funny. I've been told I'm not funny. So I believe that now. But I, what I love about improv, it's exactly like what you said. It, it really embraces failure. You have to get up there and just try. Um, you also have to realize it's just, it's not all about you. And, you know, what people think is almost irrelevant because it takes extremes amount of courage to get up there and do that. Totally. Plus one. So going back to like those five words, education, well, that's exactly who you are and how you embraced um, education and it being a global and that you made it into a community. And then history is tying into the economics. And then basketball is about the, the team dynamics, I believe, um, and also about, you know, measuring success. I think basketball, all sports are about that. And then we have improv. you got to be able to pivot quickly. And then we're over into music. And you always, always, we have playlists. And I love that in the application that we got to say, what is our favorite types of music? Yeah, I think um, music is, when you're trying to build a, a global community that is so different and coming from such different places, um, music is is just one of these things that, um, like everybody has it in common, right? Uh, even if you don't like playing music, you almost always like love listening to music and so it's i think it's important to put it at the center of um of this types of experiences because uh it's sort of i would argue sports and music are are two things that are almost like global languages in the, on, of themselves um so i play a little bit of, of guitar um but i'm not like too too good at it um i um i've been learning to mix music a little bit so like i'm djing uh, a little bit which has been fun and I just listen to a lot of music. I try to curate music for my friends, for people, for other transcend fellows. Um, so yeah, it's very present in, in my life, I would say. Yeah. I think that when you chose music as part of transcend, um, we know that food always brings people together, right? Because, you know, and we love experiencing people. Well, most people do like experiencing food from around the world. But music is, I think, the second best that you can do when you're in a global virtual type of community because you can't 
maybe I can get Panda Express, but it's not going to be the real Asian food, honestly. So when you, you play the music, we all get to experience it the same way. So that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I think people also like feeling um, heard when you're able to like listen to their uh, music recommendations. And um, so that's an, another thing that I think is, is important. Yeah, it's something that we all share together. So yeah, sports, I would agree with you about sports also. I know that not everybody may be a an athlete, but they all gather around, at least in the United States, around the Super Bowl, around these big, you know, sporting events, uh, something that's around a championship. And that's why we have Olympics also, right? It was to bring all of the countries together in sports. So yeah. Yeah, I think it comes down to games and people people love games. So you do. Yeah, because even as children, we absolutely love games. You know, it's again those team dynamics. So, what have you learned as from being a founder yourself? You know, that's what you've launched here. So, you're a founder. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say, whenever I hear this this question being answered, um, it always, I think, makes me think like, oh yeah, hindsight is is twenty twenty, right? Like everybody looks back at the things that they didn't know and that they now know. Um, but I always try to answer from a place of what am I learning right now? Um, because um, I think it, when I think about learning, failure is a very important part of learning. And I I would say with great confidence that a, a, part, a huge part of being a founder is constantly feeling like you're failing. Um, and it's tough. Like you take things personal. You assume that it has to do with your self worth and um and i think it can take you to some dark places sometimes and um i would say for me one thing that i'm just i'm learning is um how to how to fail and <laughs> how to do it in a way that uh, is constructive and when something doesn't work um kind of have a reflex kind of uh of like okay like let's learn from it let's take the best things out of this and move on um and not dwell too much on it so Actually, kind of similar to what I was saying with improv. Uh, but um, one of the things that I think humans, we tend to do is we we need refreshers and we forget uh, things and we think we've learned something and then we have to unlearn it and then relearn it. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I find that that's one of the things that I always keep coming back to. Like, how, how do you feel good about the work that you're doing um, and how do you create direction? for others and create uh, a vision and excitement around others uh, for others when you feel like everything is constantly on fire. Mm. Um, and that's, I think, a part of being a founder. I, I'm going to use that as a quote when everything is on, on, when everything is on fire. Yes, I have can relate to that so much. Um, yeah. Thanks for sharing that one. I've been taking some notes that you've uh, been sharing because I use that to build a description of what the the podcast will be about, just so you know what's going on. Um, okay, so what is a favorite quote that you like to live by? Something that is super helpful. So I think uh, I actually don't feel like I have a lot of quotes. Like I think quotes are not something that like drive me as much, I would say. Um, but there was one quote that um, I think about often that I just think is really beautiful. Um, and it's, um, so Richard Feynman um, uh, wrote this Ode to a Flower that I thought is uh, like really beautiful. And it's, uh, it says, science knowledge only adds to the beauty and mystery of a flower. And I think um, it's something that I just see being applied to not just kind of nature, uh, but also a lot of social in like interactions or social phenomena you might see and um, I think you can try to understand things with great rigor and with a scientific process um, kind of like you were talking about with basketball you can try to measure success as much as you can but at the end of the day there's a lot of very human things that are happening that are creating that beautiful place of and that beautiful um, moment of playing basketball that I think um yeah, can are just wonderful, and so I think using science to understand that is great. Um, but it should be thought of as something that augments it rather than uh, explains that in uh, itself. 
Do you have a favorite uh, basketball movie? I know that there's been quite a few of them. I think um, one was, I'm looking, I pulled some up just really quick while we were talking because there was one where the basketball team was killed in an accident. And I think it was We Are Howard. I'm not sure if I have the name right. Um, but that was supposed to, that was very, very inspiring for me. And then I saw something recently with, um, oh gosh, Adam Sandler. Adam Sandler. Yeah. Husband. Yeah. That was great. If, uh, I actually haven't seen it, uh, but it's a Spanish uh, basketball player that uh, plays the role yeah. of um, something, Juan Cruz or something like that. Um, yeah. I think it's the name of the character. Uh, but this guy plays for the Toronto Raptors right now. Uh, <laughs> uh, he's a Spanish player. So um, I, I actually, I'm, I'm not a huge movie person, so I haven't um, haven't seen this one. I'd say that the one that a lot of people in my generation remember um, is Space Jam with Michael Jordan. Like, oh, we, it's just a classic. Yeah. Well, you definitely have to go and watch the movie with Adam Sandler in it. It was so, so incredibly good. So good. Uh, and it was well done. Now, I don't know how accurate it is because you'll probably know better because, you know, I'm, I'm I don't follow basketball as much, but I have a lot of respect for Adam Sandler. I think he's a, a really good actor that people underestimate a lot because they pigeonhole him in one place, you know, for stand up like Kami. He, he's done improv before also, um, but he's he's brilliant in that movie. Yeah, yeah, uh, I got to go watch it. Yeah, definitely. You know. you'll, you'll love it. Um, hardest lesson that you learned that changed your life. What What was that? So I think it has to do with basketball again. So um, I I think about um, that one moment that I mentioned um, of like learning that I could no longer play basketball um, when I was 17. So um, I was basically training in, um, I was in the middle of basketball practice and I just collapsed in the middle of a, of a game. So uh, that's how I learned that I had a heart condition. Um, this was in October 2013 so exactly 10 years ago um and this is a really difficult moment in in my life i had to go through heart surgery um and yeah it, like it was a really difficult year for for me and i think that is kind of a, one of those moments in life that you can usually like look back and, and point to a massive change or like a drastic circumstance in life that really changes the future uh for forever um, so that that was one of those things for me. Um, so when I think about that lesson, I think that was um, that was probably the the moment that really changed everything in my life. I think if if that hadn't happened, um, I think I would be a very very different person today, and one that probably wouldn't uh, resonate as much with a lot of the things that um, I've been sharing today. I think it would be a lot more boring, less passionate about the things that I do. Um, and so I think the lesson I I learned then was. Um, it takes a lot of humility, um, vulnerability, and honestly, a, a lot of strength to acknowledge that you have to be the. So you you often have to be the dumbest person in the room when you're learning something new, right? So uh, for me, it looked like having a thing that I always kind of look. Whenever I felt insecure about something, I think in the back of my mind, I was always thinking you know, I'm actually, I'm really good at basketball. So like, it's okay. I'm not very good at school. It's okay. I'm not very good at these other things. Um, and I think having to break free from that, that was really valuable in my life. I think what I always felt like was the worst thing that ever happened in my life 10 years back, 10 years after that, I can now look at it and with confidence say it was the greatest thing that ever happened in my life. Um, so I think the, the lesson I learned there was you have to be comfortable and you have to be appreciative of those moments where you're the dumbest person in the room because that gives you a great opportunity to learn new things that might end up becoming really core to who you are as a person and that's that's what I experienced I, I was able to um, get interested in history get interested in economics and improv and um, startups so many different things that I would have never thought would be such a core part of my life and that required vulnerability. That required like going through a learning process that was not easy, but I got through it and it was okay. So I think now I feel more comfortable making those um, 
changes and uh, going through that kind of the initial part of the learning curve, which is always really tough. Um, but you got to remind yourself that like there's a curve that trends upward um, <laughs> and the slope like gets a little bit uh, sort of uh, better in the future. So mm. I think that was a very powerful um well, revelation that you shared too, because many times, and especially at that young age of 17, people think, oh, this is what I'm going to be all my life. And we don't even have the, I think wisdom, I'll use that word, wisdom to look beyond that one thing, that one thing. And so you were, and I'll use this word, I'm a Jesus girl with a potty mouth usually, but you were blessed enough to have seen that that one moment turned into what you said is the greatest thing that happened in your life. It freed you from some disappointments that could have happened much later where uh, we, we rely on a physical presence of who we are, not who we are in our head and our heart. So yeah, yeah you're really smart and you're super passionate. <laughs> That's from the, the heart and all of those things, you might not have seen that. Yeah, I definitely didn't see it at the time. And I think it's it's now with the distance that I'm able to to see it. Um, I think I'm, I'm assuming a lot of people that are listening to the, this podcast are, are really early in their careers. And one thing I would um, encourage them all to do is if you feel like you've always um, been striving to to get the, the, the good grade, like this great grade, and like go to the great, get an, an amazing internship and go to this great school and like do the right thing. Um, I'd encourage you to find something that's very small and where you can fail really badly. And I think um, those experiences can be very constructive. And because I think you fail and it feels bad and then you keep trying and then at some point it, it just feels like, okay, and um, and things get better. And I, I think it's something that I'm really glad that I had that in my life, like feeling a lot more comfortable failing um, earlier on. Um, so I, if I meet a lot of a lot of founders, uh, a lot of just friends that have never had those moments. Um, and when they hit you at a later stage, they hit you a lot harder. So I encourage everybody to find a safe place where they can fail, and like do that one thing that they're not very good at. Do that, like try this thing that you think is very unlikely you'll be able to make it and just become more, more comfortable with it. And I think that will be, that will do wonders for their mental health and for their lives and their careers. Mm, that's really, really true too. Um, okay. So we're going to be taking a break to recognize Transcend Network, a sponsor of our show. So we'll be right back. Transcend Network helps early stage startup founders find product market fit through weekly experiments, receive fundraising support, and build a global founder investor network for edtech and the future of work technologies. The Intern Whisperer is affiliated with Employers for Change, and we thank Transcend Network for being a sponsor of our show. And we're back to the second half of our show, where we focus on the future of jobs and industries in 2030. So what do you think 2030 or 2035 will look like? I watch a lot of sci-fi things like Black Mirror and The Future Of, and then I listen to podcasts about it, and then I also have started reading way more about that. But I really think a lot of literature is showing us what it's going to look like. What do you think? Yeah, I, I always have a hard time um, like picturing one um, feature, right? I think... Uh, the future will be a complex like combination of many different futures. And um, what I try to do to simplify that is to just try to focus on a few things that I feel like are likely um, or are something where I can play some sort of role in creating th uh, those things. And so that really like creates a very small um, scope uh, of, of thinking. I guess one feature that I'm personally very excited about is um, I, I know we'll get into AI a little bit more and how it can change education, but um, I, I look to the music um, music making process as one that is very highly augmented or enabled by technology. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of different things we do in life, such as writing, such as reading, having conversations, uh, a lot of these things will be augmented by technology. 
in a way that's very similar to how we use technology in music. Um, so just to, to make that, lend that a little bit more, when, when there were, people started singing um, with microphones, there was a lot of pushback in many kind of traditional music genres because it felt fake. It was, you're a bossa nova singer and, or a samba singer and you were using a microphone, you were cheating. You were no longer having to raise your voice to a point where you could make your uh, voice a part of the music but it enabled a lot of people that were maybe more soft-spoken to, to sing and to do it in different styles, right? Then autotune came up, then music, uh, um, like music, like audio software that allows you to make music came up, uh, MIDI uh, keyboards came up and they allowed us to create music um, to a point where now anybody can go on GarageBand and make some amazing like beats. They can make uh, an amazing song without knowing anything about music. And so I think we're already seeing how technology is enabling something like music creation. And I think what we're seeing now is ChatGPT and other different technologies are enabling us to do that for the process of writing, right? And we can kind of get started writing or having a conversation with someone who is very knowledgeable about something without that person being in the room. And so, um, I don't really know what the future will look like, um, but one thing that I am excited about is us as humans having a lot more assistants almost that are virtual, they're machines, and they help us get better at doing specific things um, in the same way that technology is helping us do better music, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's true. I had never thought about, I did not know that using the microphone would have been like cheating. That's interesting because I can actually see uh, a point in time in history when that would have been, oh no, we don't like that. It's not your real authentic voice. Yeah. And people would be more inclined to say no opera, right? Is like real singing and things of that nature. But if you, if you, find how a lot of young artists who are like putting their music up on SoundCloud or like YouTube, like they're just getting started. And a lot of them are not really even making their own music. They're, they're going out on a YouTube marketplace and like buying some like guitar riff and they're just like singing their own lyrics on top of it. Um, but they're creating a movement around it. They're, they're creating a very strong presence online. They're creating a, um, a group of people that like, come together with a purpose that's that's what music is right so we've just made it a lot easier for a lot more people be able to do that without needing to have a band that's that's a wonderful thing we've done um so i look forward to that happening in a lot of other industries hmm. imagine is... like the amount of people that could be amazing writers i mean amazing like open writers uh or newsletter writers or poets um, if they had someone that could actually go the last mile and do the actual writing, uh, they just have the ideas. They're not very good at like the actual writing component. Um, in the same way that maybe the singer needs the mic to raise their voice, they have an, they have something to say. It's just they need that extra push, that last mile. And so that's a, at a high level, like my personal thesis around how this will shape. Mm, I would agree with you on that one too. Yeah, this has been a great conversation. I'm really enjoying it so much. So let's talk about AI then. I know that we had uh, Gonzo, who was in my fellowship cohort. Um, he had we had talked about Chat GPT uh, in one of the sessions that we had, and then he and I had an offline conversation about it. Um, there's been so much fear in the education and the uh, I'll say the writing field that it's going to take away jobs it's going to change jobs we already know that i could see a job that would come out of chat gp that would be to fact check and to also make sure it's really more peer reviewed it's supported by those elements so it's not pulling just fake news or opinion what are your thoughts about chat gpt I think um, you know, going back to the previous idea, I think it will help a lot of people become better writers. Um, it will help a lot of people 
become better songwriters, uh, a lot of like better artists in general. Um, it also poses a lot of challenges for the traditional education system as we know it. Um, so I hope that we can have tools like examined the one that Gonzalo is building um, to help us make that transition and adapt how we assess students uh, for these new technologies. Um, but yeah, overall, I think it's it's an exciting one. I think um, it will it, it's making a lot of people uncomfortable because it's bringing a lot of change. Um, people don't but, like change. Yeah, but yeah, that's fine. Like I, I, I understand it. Um, I, I know it's it's like I think particularly from the perspective of teachers, it's it's really tough because like you you look at um, all the essays or professors, right? Like the number of essays that like students are submitting and and the weight that those um, essays have on your grade is pretty massive so all of a sudden you don't you can't count on that to to be a part of your assessment like where where do you get the um where, like where do you get grades right like how do you assess students performances so i understand why like this is not just change this is like really rapid change so i understand why that's um difficult um and i hope we can start a conversation around new ways to address that um, instead of like just repelling that and trying to pretend like it's not happening and you know <laughs> just no, 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 no. Um, yeah. no I saw as soon as it was being published uh, many professors were approaching it different I'll say educators so it's more inclusive um, they were saying okay I want you to use it I want you to be able to look things up and have chat GPT answer it in a paragraph. And then I want you to take that paragraph and I want you to rewrite it. So they're using it as a tool to help um, students be able to uh, get, I guess, you know, a, a launch onto uh, not be bottled up by going, oh, I don't know where to start. And then they can take that and then they can still build it in with additional research. I think that's a brilliant way. You're not going to be afraid of it. I, uh, Gonzalo, he showed me, Gonzo showed me exactly how he was using it in, you know, his platform. And there's, um, I guess I'll call it a penalty, but you know, you lose some points if you use chat versus if you really know your stuff, then you can, you know, speak to it directly. And I feel like there's a very, there's going to be so many different ways that it can uh, make us sharper and better. Um, I would love to see that happen. There, where you would see the, um, I think, somebody's personal ethics weighing in is if they use chat GPT to always do all of their work. And if they are asked, okay, now you have to write without using it. It's going to become very obvious if you really know the material or if you don't. So I think more of um, tests that do not allow you to take anything but your either your own handwritten notes in. When I took my PhD uh, exam, it was two days, two full days. I could take no notes and I had to go and write on four topics you know, half a day for each one. It was the hardest test I ever had because it was the, like two years of, of courses. And I feel like that's going to become back, you know, real-time writing versus, you know, you, you can't use chat. I, I personally feel like keeping students from using it is is one way to go about it, but I don't personally feel like it's the best. Uh, I think it's more like, um, with, so for example, with, um, Gonzalo, one of the things he's trying is if you give students the answer, um, and like, you basically let students answer the question with chat GPT it gives and a you ask them, yeah, it's, it's, it, it, it's a hint, but like, if, if, if you actually have like chat GPT give you the answer, um, you can do like you can do a full write-up on why it may be right or wrong, right? Like, and, or why does like, I mean, tell me more, right? Like go to the next uh, level of, of depth. And I think um, that's actually great. I think if we're able to find assessment models that that have to do with justifying existing knowledge or um, I think that's that's awesome. Like, I think that's a lot, that's a lot more aligned with how we live our lives in the world than it is about like, 
I don't think um, you go around the world and like kind of doing go about with your life and people ask you, like, tell me the definition of this thing, right? It's more like you see something happening in the wild and you have to make sense of it. And I think assessment should, um, assessment should help you mirror what the reality of, of the world looks like, right? So um, if we're going to be using AI to do all of our emails and all of our reports, then why not use it for um, our exams, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To a certain place, yeah. I think it depends on what you're trying to uh, demonstrate. If you're trying to show that you know how to use chat GPT in a way that's um, accurate, and then you have to prove the accuracy, I think that's one way to do it. But I feel like there's going to be a lot of career opportunities coming out of this. I think the reason why education is so hesitant is it's a very slow moving beast uh, as a as a just an, a type of entity uh, or an industry, because everything in higher ed and in public schools has to go through uh, curriculum reviews. It has to go through you know, any type of, uh, guidelines and, and what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it'll come to me in a minute, but anyway, there's, there's rigor that's behind the whole process and it's there to ensure that is, as you were saying, integrity is in place. Otherwise, you know, you're, you're not really earning the degree, you know, you just learn how to copy and paste basically, which is not necessarily education. They don't even read stuff now a lot of times so I don't know I feel like it's really going to change education but in a very positive way but let's look at the negative side what do you think is the negative side or ethical dilemmas really more of ethical dilemmas do you see any in there I think the the one um, dilemma that I think often comes to mind is ChatGPT or all these uh, large language models, they're not intelligent themselves, right? Like they, they're they just, uh, they don't really know, the, they don't, they kind of break down what they're telling you. They're just telling you something based on what data they've stored um, or what data they're able to retrieve from the large uh, data sets that they, they can compile. Um, I think there will be a lot of, I think, how do I say this? I think ChatGPT is going to guide a lot of our ideas and a lot of our um, decisions based on things that have happened in the past and have been recorded in by Google or by Twitter or by something that's readable by this large language model. And sometimes we're going to want to kind of come up with um, things that are not recorded in that database, right? So um, to what extent can you trust something that can mix past data, but um, it's not necessarily coming up with new uh, ideas sometimes, right? So that that's um, I think the dilemma that I I, um, I think about is is that it's like what happens when you're using all of this past data to make new decisions, and sometimes you will want to consider new data data sets that are not included there, right? Um, a big part of history is. Um, thinking about what archives you want to to get your your um, research, uh, your primary sources. Um, what are some of the biases that um, the historians have? Right, there's even a whole sub subject around it, which is his historiography. Um, and I don't see a lot. Of, I think I see a lot of people taking what ChatGPT says at face value. Um, and I think we need a historiographer of uh, for, for for data too, right? Someone who is able to identify the biases in the data sets that are contained in these large language models, and identify maybe what data points are not included. Or um, yeah, so so that would be my the, the ethical dilemma that comes to mind. Mm, that's good. Uh, I haven't ever heard anybody think about it from that perspective. So that is really interesting. Um, okay, so do you have any type of um, Last question about the future of work. Any type of uh, way that you think that robots or any of this 
AI? Are you a believer of even the matrix that we're going to be plugged into it? Our consciousness is going to be put into these things. What are your thoughts? And remember, these are just opinion questions. So none of us are experts. It's just an opinion. So uh, the question is, uh, do you have any specific opinions on like robot, like automation um, well, or any specific technology? Yeah, there's this place where if you've seen any of the Black Mirror episodes, um, you can put consciousness into other beings, and that can include robots. There's also this place as to what would that AI look like? Will it be that we're also being plugged into a matrix, literally like the movie, you know, back back in the day, right? So do you see any of that as something that's in the future? Uh, personally, I do, and I talk about it frequently in different uh, episodes because I feel like there's going to be, I don't know how far out, but I feel like it's going to be happening at some point. Yeah, um, I'm I'm totally um, like unprepared to, to like really uh, talk about this, I, but I'm, I'm interested in it. I've, I've read a little bit of like the sort of singularity thesis, right? Of like kind of being able to create, uh, kind of, yeah, transcend the the body and be able to kind of move our identity and our uh, consciousness to a like a chip, right? Um, but I I don't have a strong opinion on it. And honestly, I'm th this applies to a lot of things in my life. Like the things are really beyond my control, like religion, like. Uh, I don't even think about them too much. I'm, I'm not a very religious person myself. Um, and it's because I, I don't really think about these things that are so far outside of the scope of my life. Um, so I don't have anything too smart to say. Oh, no, it's all opinion. So it, it's it's not a matter of whether it's smart or not. It's just an opinion question. Well, we are at the, the tail end. What is the uh, best mentoring advice that you would want to share with our listeners? And I'll give you a little insight. Our listeners are not young, that young. We have a span of like 23 to 65, and most of them are mid-30s to 40s that listen to our show. So your insight can be applicable to people in different generations, honestly, because every 10 years, we always want to reinvent ourselves. So whatever you share as mentoring advice is going to be applicable to any Great. generation. Well, I think I sound like a bit of a broken record, but um, it's going to be again about failing and failing fast and failing often. Um, and I think becoming more comfortable with it. So if you don't feel like you're failing um, in anything that you're doing in your life right now, Try to find something that um, has, it's kind of a safe place to to fail, right? So maybe find a class in the afternoons or like in the evenings that allows you to go try something and where you can be not very good at it. You can take some time to figure it out. And if you're making a big career jump in like trying a new career or like if you're becoming a founder, like these are some very big uh, kind of very big changes where you're going to fail a lot and you're going to feel very accustomed to it. So if you don't feel like that's the right moment for you, find small ways um, that are sort of risk-free to, uh, to fail in your life. I really appreciate that you've uh, talked about this a lot in this episode because it's hitting home for me really well because I'm going, oh, sometimes I feel like, man, what am I doing? You know, the imposter syndrome will set in and, and I feel like I, I'm not hitting enough of the goals. And I try to go back and reframe it and go, well, let's look at what you did do and go, oh, okay. There are a lot of wins there. So I appreciate that mentoring advice right now in this moment. So thank you. So Thank how you, can Isabel. our listeners contact you? What is the best way to reach you? We usually give their LinkedIn, so we're going to put that on the close. Perfect. Uh, yeah, LinkedIn works. Uh, Twitter, you can follow me uh, at Alberto Arenaza, which is my last name. You can also um, read our newsletter. So we have a, um, a substack called the Transcend Newsletter, where we talk about the future of learning and the future of work and the founders that are building. So um, definitely recommend you check that out. All right. Well, that is wonderful. I want to thank you again for being a guest on the show. 
and also to Transcend Network as a sponsor of our show. Um, this has been great, and we look forward to, I, well, I missed the session that you had yesterday on um, the financial training, and I'm like so bummed out I couldn't be there, but I know I can go back and listen to it in the recording. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much as well. This is a great opportunity. So um, I hope all the readers got, all well, the listeners got some something out of this. Oh, they did. I appreciate you. Thank you to our video and editing sponsor, Cat5 Studios. We want to thank our production and editing editor, Josue Gonzalez, and our music by Sophie Lloyd. Visit Employers for Change at www.e4c.tech to learn how you can create real diversity and inclusion culture while scaling your people for the future. Thank you for supporting The Intern Whisperer by subscribing to us on Podbean, or you can find our video on our Employers for Change YouTube and Facebook channels, or you can stream from your favorite podcast channel.